0: Chapter 18 of Assurance of Grace and Salvation. And uh, I'm sure all of you who are here today are uh, sure of your salvation. And so this will be a very easy class. Someone said, uh, you know, that it was a very difficult subject, uh, assurance of salvation. And I said, why is it difficult? It's all of God, it's because we have to live in this skin. It's because we have to live with our own conscience. We have to live with our own heart. And the problem is the weight and the burden sometimes of assurance. We shift over to ourselves. Rather than resting in the promises of God. This is all about the the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And so it is very simple. But to live it out and understand it can be difficult. Uh, I can tell you this, that my father-in-law who uh, died at age 96 uh, was, um, no, no 98, excuse me and about 10 years ago he was around 88 years old had preached the gospel all of his life, had been a strong student of the word consuming the word of God, preached the word faithfully from the text and I can remember I was helping him through rehab after a surgery and we were sitting in the room and he says, Sparky, sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder. And I'm thinking, if you are wondering, I'm in trouble. Now that's my looking at his life because I see the fruit. He sees all the things he didn't do. He sees all the struggles within that nobody else ever knew about it, okay? But there's struggles there. Now, I was pastor and ministering, teaching in a university as well, um, doing all kinds of things for 40 years of my life. And now I'm up here about to teach you about assurance. Have I always been 100% sure? Yes, of what God says, But within, there were struggles. There were times there were struggles. I've had struggles within the past year at times with things because I start to rest on myself rather than on God. Now, I'm taking my time, and I shouldn't be doing that. So uh, let's pray, and we'll get into this, and we'll see if we can't ground ourselves how we should be grounded. Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace, mercy, love, and compassion to sinners. We were without God and without hope in this world, but God so loved us that he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us, to give us all that we need in him. And you will persevere and be faithful to the end with an everlasting love. And so, Father, help me today to encourage the hearts of your people And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's quickly look at these sheets. Let me do some reading here with you. I want you to look carefully. And uh, Section 1, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet, yet... Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, and endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace, and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. I was going to read the whole confession here first, but uh, I'm not sure I should take that much time at this point. So let's jump right into it. The assurance of God's grace and of salvation through Christ alone, along with the indwelling of God's spirit, should be the desire and de- delight of every one of God's children. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Assurance is the conscious confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. That's the first question. Am I in a right relationship with God through Christ not through me not through my works not through my goodness not through my heartfelt emotions but through Christ and as his children we're blessed and encouraged often in our spirits when we when we go and we sing about blessed assurance Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory divine air of salvation purchase of God born of his spirit lost in his love this is my story is that your story is that your story I know whom I have believed. I know not why God's... God, what, help me here. I know not God's, why God's... One grace is grace to me, he hath made known. And I knew it before I came over, but now it's faking me out. Um, but I know whom I have believed. See, I don't remember those words, but I do know this. I know whom I have believed and been persuaded that I am able... No, he is able to keep that... Which I've committed unto him against that day. Or before the throne, my surety stands. Not me. My surety is before the throne. Who is before the throne? Who is your surety? Jesus Christ. He is your surety. So, as those who are reformed in doctrine and discipline, uh, do not we benefit? Every week with a reminder of our need to repent of our sins. As we gather together, we read the law. Subsequently, we are given what? An assurance of pardon every single week from the word of God. We receive that from the scriptures, not from the elder. The scriptures are what ground us in that. And so... uh, we receive the comfort every week as we come to God's house, as we hear the word of God, as we confess our sins, as we hear the, the assurance of pardon. But the fact is, there are people who do profess to be a Christian, but inwardly, uh, they struggle from time to time. The struggles may arise from a conscious awareness of sin, especially the indwelling of sin, false conceptions of God's character and of the gospel, A lack of clarity on justification by faith alone, lack of confessing Christ, disobedience, backsliding, ignorance of satisfying evidences of grace. I'm I just don't see all all the evidence that I should, that I really want, that I must feel. Possessing a doubtful or negative disposition, a doubtful Debbie. You know, some of us may be like that. Lack of clarity concerning the circumstances of our conversion. when when was that? When when was I? Is there something I can hold on to? Lack of acknowledging what God has done, and finally being attacked by Satan. So many things that can enter into our hearts that cause us to struggle with this. The Westminster Confession of Faith addresses this very practical matter of our assurance of faith, grace, and salvation. Joel Beaky writes this. Listen carefully. The Westminster Divines fleshed out the doctrine of assurance of salvation in chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith with precision to undeceive the false possessor of faith, professor of faith, to awaken the unsaved, to mature the young in grace, and to comfort the mature in faith. That's a great statement there. That it addresses all of us wherever we are. And encourages. I, for one, have appreciated what the confession does to give clarity and guidance for the searching of our souls on this matter. And that's why when I especially did this one sheet I showed you a moment ago, uh, with all the markings on it, that's when it became clearer to me when I really dug down deep and parsed out all that they were saying. So let's move forward here. And we're going to take this section at a time. Section one, we're going to look at the first part. I've got it here for you. You've got it on your sheet as well. Take any notes that you need to. I put, you'll see, second section there about text. I've added the text in that you might want to jot down. I will not go through all the text or else we would only get through a few pages here. But although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and of salvation. And we are stopping there because then it's going to shift with the word yet, because it's going to come to us. So the first burden here, this first paragraph presents two possibilities that we have in relationship to assurance. Assurance. There is a warning, this is what we're at now, the warning of false hope to be feared and avoided, and there's an affirmation of the true assurance that we can enjoy here. So first, the warning. This section will remind us that there are those who are self-deceived, believing that they are in God's favor and have hope of salvation without any biblical foundation. They just have this fuzzy feeling. But such people are tragically wrong. You'll notice the word hope appears here, and it will appear in the next section as well several times. The hope of the hypocrite or unregenerate person is described here in this first section with some very shady terms. For instance, notice it talks about vainly or empty. It talks about them being false, that is, untrue, fallible. Carnal, that is, they're of the flesh rather than of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. They are presumptuous. We're presuming on God. We are assuming too much, and they are destructive. That is, this hope will perish. This is the wrong kind of hope. And the Scriptures give us examples and the warnings of all of this. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty nine nineteen is mentioned here. Let me read that to you. Listen carefully. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, talking about the covenant that, that God made with man there in the book of Exodus. He says, when they hear this covenant and they bless themselves in their hearts, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, this will lead to a sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. For, for what he's saying there is if I read the words of the covenant and I say, well, God's made a covenant with me, I'm, I'm fine. So I don't need to worry. I can walk in stubbornness. I can do anything I want to do. I can live the way any, my gra- grace allows me to live any way I want, think anything I want. God's going to take care of it. All right. That's a presumption. In John chapter eight, we'll see an example of this here. It records a story of the teaching of Jesus about his being the light of the world and his being sent by the Father, John chapter 8, verses 12 to 19. And a conflict unfolded with the Pharisees who claimed Abraham as their father. And so in claiming themselves Abraham as their father, they then slandered Jesus, saying that he had been born of immorality. Who's your daddy? Who's your father? You keep talking about God being your father and yet these men also says, not only Abraham is our father, God is our father. Uh, here up on the screen, you have John eight forty one. as we're going through this. You are doing the works your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. This is the Pharisees talking to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. You are of your father, the devil. Now, here is these religious men. These are the men who are leading the the nation spiritually. These are men who are going through the rites and rituals of all these things, thinking that this made them spiritual. This gave them assurance. I am diligent in serving God. So what is the end, though? Of these men, what is Jesus? Say so you're your father, the devil. You'll do his desires. What is the end? The next phrase here in the first section of the chapter 18, which hope of theirs shall perish. To rest your hope in your own self righteousness, in your own good deeds, in your religious activities and associations. Oh, I went to church every week. Oh, I helped to serve on the days we had uh, work days. I did this. I did that. All of this can simply lead to judgment and therefore destruction. I quoted early from Ephesians 5 that all of us, all of us in this room were in the situation described by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that we were without God having no hope in this world. None of us on our own, regardless of all the good philanthropic deeds we can do, will find any hope in that. Amos chapter 9, verse 10, you see listed there. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, uh, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. We, We are God's people. We're the Jewish people. We're fine. God's going to take care of us. There's this haunting passage I've got written up here for you. R.C. Sproul called this one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. Not everyone, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, the re- repetition of the word shows a sense of intimacy. It's like me holding my wife, say, Kathy. Kathy, I love you. Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, what day? That day when we face God to, to find out. Are you in heaven or not? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus says, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a frightening passage unless you are anchored in something more than your good works and your emotions. John chapter 2, passage there, says that uh, Jesus had come to Jerusalem on the Passover. And it says, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Ah, man, this, this guy's a miracle worker. I want to follow him. Maybe he can help me with my life, make my life better here and now. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Those words there, believe, underlined, and entrust, is the exact same word in the Greek language. They were believing in Him in one sense. They saw all these things. They wanted these things for themselves. But Jesus didn't believe in them. So, there are those who believe that they're saved. Even believe that Jesus can do great things. The devils also tremble. But does that mean they have saving faith? No. However, the Westminster Confession draws our attention to those who can be assured of grace and salvation. Here's the rest of the story. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life, certainly be, be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. How do we know that we are in a state of grace? Deuteronomy 29:19. How can we know? The three initial statements are centered here. And they're all centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Notice this. We truly believe in the Lord Jesus. We love Him in sincerity. And we endeavor to walk in all good conscience before Him. So believe in Him. Love Him sincerely. And walk. endeavor to walk. That endeavor is important there. Endeavor to walk in all good grace. Before him, the Apostle John wrote a gospel that emphasizes this matter of assurance. Uh, the word believing appears over and over there, and he says at the end that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by, by believing you may have life in His name. That should be John twenty thirty one, not two thirty one. But then also, I want you to note how the letter of First John tracks. Along the path of assurance. As we look at some of the proof text from the Westminster Confession here in this section, John tells us how we can know or be assured that we are God's child. And by this we know, I want you to note how I underlined each one of these or highlighted each one of these. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. we know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We can't just use the terms and think we're there. Verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him 321 blessed is if the heart beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before god see our conf, our heart can condemn us it can condemn us either one of two ways that, that we really have deceived ourselves or can condemn us when we are not walking with god as we should but he says if you do this you have greater assurance I think I may bring this up later, but I think it was Beaky who who said that a strong faith tends toward and embraces uh, a, a strong assurance. But weak faith in what who God is and what God has done brings about, therefore, and embraces a weak assurance. The more faithful we are in following God, the more we realize his promises are true and the more we love him and the more we seek to follow him. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit he's given to us. So there's something else that the Westminster Confession is going to talk about in a moment, how the spirit of God also is at work in our lives to bring assurance to us. And here comes John's purpose statement in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So if you really believe in the name, not just know that name, but you believe, you're trusting in, you're relying on, you're resting on the Son of God and what He has done for you and provided for you through His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He says, if you believe in the Son of God, that you may know then that you have eternal life. So if we truly believe, when our faith rests not in ourselves, but solus Christus, in Christ alone, then here is... Our response of assurance. He says. When we know this. That we and me. We will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Which hope shall never make them ashamed. That word ashamed there. Is a word which meant in their time. uh, And in the original language of the Bible as well. Whenever you see this word. It meant to have no regrets. uh, To not be sorrowful. You made the right choice. So. Here we, we come to Romans chapter 5 and verse two, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by what? By our works? No, by faith. And not the faith that we have. Where do we get our faith? From God. God gives us the faith. We're justified by, by faith. We have peace with God. Not, not turmoil, not struggle within. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. So we have grace coming out to God by access through Jesus Christ. And in this, we stand. And in this, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.5. 5. Here comes that word ashamed again. It's not... You don't regret it, you're not sorry for it, and hope does not put us to shame. We will not stand before God ashamed. We stand before the throne of God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness. So because, why? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And therefore, we should and can rejoice in hope, in assurance, knowing that we have eternal life. I sometimes read these words penned by the Apostle Peter at a funeral, or at funerals when I'm doing them. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way you'll be uh, richly provided for you, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is a sense that we can anticipate the glory of God and the heavenly hope. We will see it experienced in our life and there will be a rich entrance given to us in heaven. We will not sneak into heaven. We will not slip through the pearly gates. There will be an abundant entrance Because we're so good? No. But because we have a great Savior who died for us and redeemed us. So we come to section two, the foundation of true faith. Read that. You've got that sheet before you. This certainly is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidences of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest and of our inheritance whereby we are sealed unto The Day of Redemption. John Frame, I think probably many would know that name, great theologian. John Frame points to three propositions in this section of the Confession upon which our assurance of salvation is grounded. There is justification, the divine truth of the promises of our salvation. Uh, There is also sanctification, the inward evidence of those graces under which these promises are made, and then adoption, testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we're children of God. Let's look into this and see how these unfold. This certainty is not a bare conjectural or probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. Um, Is this Christian hope of ours that we have, is it true? Is it wishful thinking? Is it an infallible truth? Or is it fake news? Um, I think that I've seen some headlines recently. I'm not into it. But they're, the Washington Commanders, it uh, was looking like they're, I don't know if everything's gone through, but it looks like the owner was selling it. And people have worshipped and adored the Washington Commanders of the NFL. And they've just been hoping to bring about a champion once again. So now their hope is... We got rid of that guy. We're going to get another guy, and he's going to do us better. This is not the kind of hope we have. Well, I hope, you know, I'm going to to change some things in my life this week. So I hope I can feel assured before God. Confession affirms that we do do have an infallible hope, and that God desires that we might have assurance. Look at Hebrews chapter six. Now I think I I know someone in the city is preaching through Hebrews right now, and so I can't wait till he gets to this. But in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 11, here's what we read. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This was this is why I'm preaching to you in the book of Hebrews. This is why I'm writing to you here in Hebrews. I have this desire that you would know the same earnestness that I know and have a full assurance and stick with it to the end. Verse 19. Verse 19. We have this. what's the this? I'll get to that in a few moments. That's a key word. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into uh, enters the inner place behind the curtain. There's a hope for us that has gone behind the curtain. It's the picture of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and the, the shed blood on the mercy seat is sufficient. Cover our sins. Now, if this is so, then what is the ground of our salvation, or source of such hope as this, and upon which we can base our salvation? Upon my feelings? Upon my good works? Upon my church membership? Upon my baptism? Is this is this where I'm getting my hope? Then, well, it goes on. But an infallible assurance of faith, founded upon divine truths. Of the promises of salvation. There are three things then we're going to look at here. The assurance of hope, the anchor of faith, finds its strength in these three sources. The first is primary, and the second two flow out of the first. They are not independent of, they are dependent upon the promises of God. And that's where sometimes we get off when we start getting into the second one and we don't see everything we want to see or feel what we want to feel. So it's the promises of God are revealed in Scripture. Number two is the inward evidences of those graces as we obey and follow the Scriptures and the testimony of the Spirit Himself who witnesses with our spirit. That we're God's, God's children. So let's consider first then these promises of God. Hebrews chapter 6 we go back there now and find out what the this was. We talked about the, the this is as a sure, steadfast hope. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things if you notice the word unchangeable appears twice here unchangeable character of god's purpose and now two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us so what are those two unchangeable things here from Hebrews 6? First, they're the promises of God. He talks about there in that second line. He wants to show convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. God had a purpose before all time. He had a purpose to elect a people for himself, to choose a people for himself that he would redeem. And the second thing is, God made an oath on it. You can read Bible back and forth time and time again. Where are you ever going to see God making an oath right here? And so oath about the promises that He made. I will keep my promise. I always want to keep my promises. I always want to do right, but you know what? I failed. Time after time, I'll make, okay, I'll get this done. Didn't get it done. I'll get this done. Didn't get it done. God, who does not lie, says you can have absolute assurance, not in yourself, but in me, because I will keep my promises to you. Thomas Brooks wrote this. The promises of God are a Christian's Magna Carta, his chiefest evidences of heaven. It's infinitely better. Listen very carefully to these words. It's infinitely better to find our assurance of faith objectively outside of ourselves than to always seek to solely ground our assurance subjectively within ourselves. If I'm always looking inside for the answer to my salvation and the assurance of my salvation, I will waver. I've found that every time I go back to the promises of God, I find strength and assurance. So it's important that we ground ourselves, therefore, in the Word of God, in the works of God within us, and in the witness of God's Spirit who is within us. 2 Corinthians one twenty. So these promises, where are they grounded? How can I be sure of them? 2 Corinthians one twenty. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is, in Jesus Christ. And our faith is grounded in that faithfulness of God in Christ. Quoting Edward Reynolds, 1642, Joel Beakey writes, The Christ-centeredness of personal assurance is accented in God's promises, for Jesus Christ himself is the sum, foundation, seal, treasury of all the promises of God. Everything we have is in Christ because everything is in Christ, that we need for our salvation. There is nothing in me that is needed except for my sin, for God to forgive. Thomas Brooks expresses it this way: Think, think of RB and B, when I'm reading this statement. <laughs> but this was written centuries ago: "Let thine eye and heart. First, most, and last, be fixed upon Christ. Then will assurance bed and board with thee. (laughs) I like that statement. You you want assurance to bed and board in your heart? You want it to live within? You want to be that R, B, and B? It comes within you, and it's living right there, and you know it? Then what he says here, let your heart and eye first most and last be fixed upon Christ and what he has done for you. Because there was nothing that you could do for yourself. Christ had to do it all. Uh, There are a few verses here. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's Truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Yes. Hebrews ten twenty three. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Faithful. You know what? The, the psalmist, you see a lot of struggles in the psalms, right? We can identify with the psalms because so much emotional struggle. You know what the, the most repeated phrase I think in the, in the book of Psalms is? God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Over a hundred times in the Psalms. God loves you with a steadfast love and God is faithful. Doesn't say anything about us. We're the ones struggling. But God says, here is where your hope is. And so, Acts 2, all the promises of God are for you and for your children. So, all these promises that God has made, therefore, each of us. And then Romans 4. I've always loved this, these verses. No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promises of God. No unbelief made him waver. But he grew strong in his faith. He kept believing in God. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that what God was, God was able to do what he promised. Do you believe God's able to save you? Do you believe God did save you? Then doesn't that settle it? All that's left is for us to walk with God, to trust in God, to live for God, to love Him, to love one another. As he said. So, our assurance of grace and foundation of assurance is evidence in another way. In the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. The fruit of grace is found in the evident growth of a life that is resting in and nourished by the promises of God. Let me read that again and, and think about this. The fruit of grace is found in the evident growth of a life that is resting in and nourished by the promises of God. Now, where are the promises of God found? This is it found in my heart as I kind of think about God? Do we have a a substantive place, a foundation where we can go to find the promises of God? Scripture. Scripture. We have the Word of God. This This is God's Word to us. These are His promises to us. And when we rest in that, this is what God said? Fine, that's it. This is what God said. And then we are nourished by that in our hearts. Jesus said this, though. Matthew seven sixteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So what about these fruits? This is where we are in this section. Jesus added in verse 17, So every healthy tree bears good fruit. So what about the fruit of my life? Paul wrote of the fruit of the Spirit that is produced in our hearts and lives, growing and maturing in us as we keep in step with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.25, I love that phrase. We have to keep in step with the Spirit. We're walking in the Spirit. We're keeping in step with the Spirit. And so, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us, so the more we know Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, through the promises of God, through the Word of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire, and for this very reason. Because you have these promises, because you've you've got God's word on it. Make every effort to support or supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing so that there's a growth in my life in God's grace, because I know that I am his child They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted so that he is blind, having forgotten, having forgotten, not lost. that He was cleansed from his former sins. When we don't live in the promises of God and in the word of God and come to hear the preaching of the word of God and read the word of God for ourselves, then we can forget We begin to look inside and say, man, maybe I'm not a Christian. So while we make every effort, the power to make that effort doesn't come from us either, but it comes from God. So, what graces do we find evidence in our lives, the lives of those who truly believe in God? Uh, a couple of them that uh, you don't see here, but we, we've already seen them in 1 John 2, 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, um, and actually that's back over here, bottom of the page there. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So what you do in living your life every day, God gives you grace. Are you living by that grace? You're his child. He gives you grace. Are you living within that? Taken together. These verses tell us that God's grace has produced in us some measure of love for and obedience to God's word. Think in your own life. Looking for assurance. Do you have a sense of loving God's word? Do you desire to go over here now and hear from the book of Hebrews as our pastor exposits that for us? Do you love to hear the word of God? Do you love to read the Word of God? Now, I'm not saying you don't waver at times. I'm not saying you skip your devotions sometimes. There are some days maybe you just don't get to it and you feel bad. Man, I must not be saved. No. Instead, we're looking here. Do we have some measure of love for and obedience to God's Word? Are 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 we endeavoring to walk before Him in the right way? Or do we love? Do we love the brethren? Do we love and serve the brethren? Do you do you look at someone and you see that there's struggles, in their life? you go over and try to encourage them? You pray with them. You do what you can to lift them up. If you've got a measure of that, this is part of the fruit of the spirit. It's not that you're going to just i I wish I could just blossom every day and all of these things, but I want to grow every day i'm maturing in these things. all this is done by god's spirit though God's spirit working in and witnessing to our spirits and that brings us to this next statement here in <clears throat> the testimony of the spirit of adoption, in other words, we've been adopted into a family the spirit of God is the is the one who comes in and brings that adoption about witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. and So the testimony of the Spirit of God will always take us back first to Scripture to illumine our hearts to the truth of the promises of God. And the Spirit of God will also work within us to cultivate the fruit of faith in our daily lives. And so using these... He gives us assurance in our life. You're, you're a child of God. Here, you love the promises. You're clinging to the promises. Here's fruit that you're beginning to produce in your life. It's not full, you're, you're a tender plant. You're growing. In a few years, it's going to be bigger and better, and it's fruit. Romans eight fifteen and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, this is not some inner voice uh, of a direct revelation. You won't hear a voice in your head. If you're hearing voices in your head, you need to see the pastor very soon. But, but it is the Spirit's working with us to confirm the evidence of the Spirit, and we're saying within ourselves, okay, I, I see God at work here. There are times I am surprised when I sense I've done something, and I say, I didn't want to do that. I, I did that for some other reason, and it's God at work in you. Further, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption is granted to us and abides in us to assure us of two things. Where spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is God keeping another promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see the progression of this? This is a beautiful progression here in these words. We heard the word of truth. We heard the gospel. We believe. We trusted in. We rested in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And at that moment, we were sealed with what had been promised by God already That is the Holy Spirit coming within us to give us a guarantee. We we hold a guarantee and a seal within us, the Holy Spirit. Notice Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit because he's living within you by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is a prodding for us to live and to walk with God. And in Second Corinthians 1, I love these two verses, 21-22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, with the Spirit of God, we have an earnest of our inheritance. It's the word earnest. Old word means a down payment. Here is the down payment in our lives, the, the Spirit of God. But then beyond that, the King of Heaven has also put the Spirit there as a seal upon our lives. Uh, I've got a marriage that I'm doing uh, coming up here in in uh, July 1st. And I've done... I, I don't even know how many marriages I've I've done in through the years. But I go through a marriage ceremony, and I do what I'm supposed to do. That doesn't confirm it. I then put my signature on a piece of paper. I mail it into the state. It goes to the state, and they seal it. And it's sent back out. My name is on it that I did this. Their seal is upon it that this now is a marriage. Interesting that the word, uh, the earnest, this down payment, was used in later Greek for an engagement ring. Interesting. And so they talk about this same thing today. We have received from God the promise, and God will fulfill it because his seal is upon us. So, look at this then. Is not the Spirit of God the author of the Scriptures in the sense that he directed the writers of Scripture? Yes or no? Is he? Okay. So, is not the Spirit of God the source of the graces? That is, the fruit and the blessings that mark the Christian's life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, so on. Right? Is that true? You affirm that? All right. Is Not the Spirit of God, the one who illumines us to the truth and who discerns and reveals our hearts regarding our relationship to God. Yes, He is. Is not the Spirit of God the earnest, the down payment, the seal, the guarantee of Christ's redemption, therefore, for His people? Yes. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So we have the Spirit of God and praise God for that. Now we come to section 3. Let's go right into various pieces rather than reading the whole. You can do that later. This, this is a very important piece here. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that the true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he is a partaker of it. Now, in the first proposition, let me explain the wording here. It's somewhat difficult for us centuries after it was written. The confession states that infallible assurance is not a part of the essence, the very nature of faith itself. In other words, having faith in God, assurance comes alongside of it, but it's not a part of it itself. The Bible doesn't teach that we must have an infallible assurance in order to be saved. That's what he's saying. You, you don't get saved. Say, okay, I know I got it. So now I just go out and live any way I want to. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. See, the Bible doesn't teach that we must have an infallible assurance in order to be saved. The fact is we may have a genuine faith and yet not feel, sense, or be strong in our assurance for a time. That's why you read in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, when a man comes to Jesus making a request and Jesus says, you know, he can do this. He's, he says, can you do this? And I, can I? You're me if can? No, I will. God, God is able. In fact, he is able to do the impossible. That's where the phrase comes in there. But the man looks at him and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe you can. Help me. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church uh, stresses that faith and assurance are of the same essence. That's where, one of the places where we are different. Because if you have one, you must have the other in order to have your, your faith validated. They teach this because they teach that works are essential and that those works must be done to secure our salvation and assurance. So if our works are weak and not clearly evident, we have no assurance of faith. That's what they teach. So you have to keep going and doing penance and doing other things and maybe even be in purgatory for a while. But the Reformed faith, we affirm that salvation is not faith plus works. It is faith that works. We have the faith. That's true and solid. And out of that faith will flow then the works of the Spirit of God who is already at work in us. Faith is essential and the essence of faith, then, is believing in or trusting, resting, relying on the finished work of Christ and the cross and his resurrection. G.I. Williamson explains assurance this way. Assurance is a, full, a fruit of grace. The tree from which it comes is that working of the Spirit of God, which makes a believer diligent from the heart to keep God's promises. The root is grace, the tree is diligence, and the fruit is assurance. So be rooted in the truth. Be rooted in God's grace and His forgiveness. And then comes our diligence out of that, and then comes that assurance. And Philippians 2, 13 and 14, Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's really God. Who works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. There are sometimes I don't will, I don't choose, and God convicts me and says, "No, you ought to do this," and you do it, and that is the Spirit of God convicting us. Hebrews thirteen, look at this uh, wonderful uh, doxology here, and praise to God and and benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, or here whose God is, the great shepherd of the sheep, that's Jesus, by the blood of the eternal covenant, the eternal covenant, not temporary or dependent covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us. So He's going to equip you, but He's not going to equip you. He's going to operate the equipment with you. He is there for you working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things that are freely given Him by God. You notice that we weren't working for it at all. It was freely given by God. He may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means attain thereunto. We don't need some extraordinary revelation. There's so many people looking for that. Give me something to hold on to. I I need an experience. I need need something to just prove to myself. Uh, More than what God has said? 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us from God. God uses instead not extraordinary things, but he uses ordinary means. What are the ordinary means that God uses? Second point. The ordinary means include the word of God. These are the means of God's enablement, his encouragement, and the assurance. The word of God. You come, you hear it preached, you read it for yourself, you study it. Here is the means of grace. Number two, the sacraments, our baptism, the Lord's table. We come, we see, we taste, we touch, we see, we hear. All of our senses are touched in that. I read something about Arsic of Sproul once that really just moved me about how all five senses at, at the communion time are touched. To show to you, this is a seal to you. Uh, <clears throat> the prayers we offer—you know—sometimes it's just our prayerlessness and seeking God's face, so He might affirm to us through His Word what is true. Because it's not the biggest struggle, maybe in most of our lives, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Our prayer life—I can read the Word of God. Boy, I could spend a long time in reading. Okay, I'm my time is just about out here. Uh, and then, number four, is the affliction we endure. God uses affliction as well as one of those means by which we learn to grow in His grace as God tests our faith to see the substance. I wish I could go to Deuteronomy eight right now and show you that, but I must move on so we have uh not we have received the spirit, not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand. Things freely given to us by God let me move on down here please give me a couple more minutes we'll try to finish this up and therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure this comes right out of second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 so we are not just to sit and let, let go and let God we're not just to sit and soak it is our privilege and responsibility both to be active in our faith and faithfulness to the god who has redeemed us and so thereby that thereby the heart may be enlarged so as as we as we are as this line says following our duty to give all diligence to make our calling and election sure then Thereby the heart may be enlarged, in in these ways: first, in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost; in thankfulness, in love and thankfulness to God; and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. I love how that's expressed, and we we see a Trinitarian work here that's going on in our lives. So. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and through him who have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, so on. And then in that final section, the proper fruits of this assurance, which he has just mentioned for us, so that it is far from inclining men to looseness. In other words, the fact that you know you're saved, the fact that you are showing some fruit in your life, the the fact that you know that you have a place in heaven should not ever cause you to live a loose life it prompts you instead out of gratitude For God, we look back there, uh, in love and thankfulness to God and strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, it prompts us, therefore, further to live to the glory of God. If we say we have fellowship with Him and while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. My little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And about all I can do here, um, those are just some more verses. Just finally, let's read this last statement, and then i got to let you go or they're going to shoot me. They're going to shoot me anyway. But true believers may have the assurance that uh, their salvation divers ways shaken, diminished, intermitted. That is, you almost sense like you've lost everything for a time. As by negligent in preserving it, how can we be negligent? We go to, don't go to church. We don't read our Bibles. We don't pray. We don't trust God in hard times. By falling into some special sin, there's some habit something you've developed in your life, something you're depending upon more to give you satisfaction in life than God, which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the Spirit. By some sudden vehement temptation, you're suddenly in a situation and, it, and suddenly you're just overwhelmed. You, as one pastor told me once, temporary insanity, temporary insanity, and you do something you know you should not be doing or by the withdrawing of the light of God's countenance. There are times in which God may seem distant and may be for a purpose, so you will seek Him. And so you will see that you need to rest in Him. But, but, notice here, the suffering, even such as fear to walk in darkness and have no light, but yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God talked about in 1 John. And the life of faith and that love of Christ and the brethren and that sincerity of heart and the conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. I'm going to stop with that because I've gone four minutes over. But <clears throat> I'm, I'm assured that I do not have next week. That's why I had to rush through that. And, and I, I trust that you realize that everything rests upon the promises of God. Everything rests upon the Word of God. God does not lie. If He said He will save you by His grace and you're resting and trusting in Him, He does. He will. Father, thank You for Your promises to us. Bless Your people. And may they find encouragement in Your Word and in Your Spirit who resides within them. And may they manifest the fruit of the Spirit and find their joy and rest in You. In Jesus' name, amen.